If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're not going to be in Romans 12 for very long, so don't uh, rest there. And we are just going to refresh our memory of what we read last week from Romans 12. And then we're going to go to Isaiah 37. Okay, so starting in Romans 12, then jumping over to Isaiah 37. Uh, Part of the reason is um, I I felt like the end of the sermon, um, the the, the last and final point of last Sunday's sermon, I'm not saying I didn't do it justice, but after preaching it and, and thinking more about Uh, the way chapter 12, verse 12 ends. And so let's just read it, and then uh, I'll make some remarks here. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now remember, we said that the word, uh, or be devoted, some translations say be devoted, some, some say constant, that the idea here is of a hunting dog who does not quit in its pursuit of the prey that's been killed until it's found. Okay, that's the idea of what it means to, to be devoted. That's the illustration there in the Greek language. And so I told you last week that I wasn't going to preach, you know, at the end about, uh, you know, kind of getting on to you about why we're so prayerless and why we should pray more. Um, I, I just made a couple of comments just to remind us about what prayer's really about, that it's not a domestic intercom uh, to call, uh, you know, the, the, the great butler in the sky to bring us uh, whatever it is that we want, but it is a wartime walkie-talkie uh, designed to call the commander-in-chief for reinforcements, for resources, uh, for everything that we need to fight the battle right, to fight the battle. And so after, you know, after having said that last week and, and thinking about this week and looking at going ahead and let's go on to verse 13 and go ahead and get into generosity and, and, uh, and, and other topics uh, about what it looks like to live this Christian life, kind of the shoe leather uh, uh, faith, uh, what it looks like in the real world. I just felt, I felt the nudging that you can't just leave prayer like that. And so um, I started digging back into some old prayer material that I had from years ago. We've preached a lot on prayer here. We've, uh, we've done weeks of prayer. We've done 40 days of prayer. We've done 30 days of prayer. We've done 21 days of prayer. Uh, even uh, almost uh, nine years ago, we had a list uh, where we asked uh, for members to take an hour out of each day, and we had all the 24 hours listed, and we had about 18, I believe, of those 24 hours where people had uh, uh, committed to praying for that one hour during the day, and we gave prayer gods out. I mean, man, prayer has, we, we've done a lot. I mean, you see on the stage, we've got the the crosses that still have some of the prayer cards. You remember when we spent 2019 uh, dedicating five minutes of our service to corporate prayer, and we would pray and hang our, our prayers on, on these crosses. And so there's no doubt that we have, uh, we have been a church, um, maybe not always, but at, at various times, uh, we have made a concerted effort to pray together and to be uh, people of prayer. But I know what the reality of it is, is that we're, we're, we're not as prayerful as we ought to be, right? I mean, if we did a survey this morning, we would probably be right in line with most every other evangelical church in America, and we would probably find that we, uh, on average, that we're spending three to five minutes a day in prayer. And you're thinking, oh, here we go. Now he's going to beat us up. Because you've, you, you've had to beat down prayer sermons, right? 
where you know you feel like you're so low if somebody spit on you you would drown that's about how low you feel and it's not really helpful you don't really you know uh leave here uh, charged up ready to you know storm hell with a water pistol you just leave here just as dejected about your prayer life as you did before you came in and the only thing that you really learned is is that all your suspicions about how pathetic you are in prayer are really true and there's not a whole lot you can do about it because you've had a hundred how-to prayer sermons and really none of them have worked and none of them have done you any good so, what makes this sermon any different than all those other sermons? Well, that's a good question, and, and one that I hope that I can answer this morning. I, I've entitled this morning's sermon, the, the Fuel and the Fan for Devoted Prayer. The Fuel and the Fan for Devoted Prayer. Uh, we have a fireplace at our house, and we, we love to build fires. And uh, uh, nothing to me like a, like a, like a good, well-built fire or a campfire. But to, in order to have a good fire, you've got to have, you've got to at least have one aspect, and that's you've got to have a fuel source, right? You've you got to have some wood. And so this morning, there, there's really just one point of the whole sermon, and I'm, I'm going to give that point to you here in just a second. Uh, well, I tell you what, let's do this. Let, let me just go ahead and give you the point, and then we'll talk about it, about it being the fuel. The sovereignty of God is the fuel and fan, not the excuse for a devoted prayer life. The sovereignty of God is the fuel and the fan, not an excuse for a devoted prayer life. So let me, let me explain this uh, for a minute or two. The sovereignty of God is the fuel. It is the logs. Without the sovereignty of God, not one person in this room should devote one second of your life to prayer because it will be a useless exercise if God is not in control of everything. Do you understand that part so far? Without the sovereignty of God, there is absolutely no reason to pray. And I will go so far as to say this. It is the sovereignty of God that gives us our only reason for praying. The fact that God is in control gives us the necessary fuel that we need to be people that are devoted to prayer. But now, let's say this. We, we, we got the sovereignty of God. We understand the sovereignty of God. We understand that God is in control. But, but yet, even... That truth, that, that source of fuel, still does not create in us a devoted prayer life. Now, you've got to stay with me early on, because this, this is important for you to get. That's a big doctrinal truth that should just... I mean, really, that doctrinal truth should fuel every command in the Bible. I mean, when, when you think about evangelism... And you, the only fuel source you need is God is sovereign in salvation. Therefore, I can go out and be as bold a witness for Christ as I possibly can. Why? Because I can't save anybody. Only God can. So if he's the one doing the saving and he's told me to go out and evangelize, then guess what? That's all I need. So there, that's a fuel source. But here's what we know about every fuel source, right? Every fuel source begins to run low, right? Your, your gas tank runs low after a while, right? If you got a good fire built in your house, and uh, so I brought, I just, I just got this because I wanted to get one for my fireplace. Y'all know what this is? It's a billow or a bellow, and it just blows out air. But what happens is, is when that fire gets a little low and you don't have the big crackling flames coming up and you, you just got some smoldering embers down, if you want to kind of stoke that fire up a little bit, you get, you get this little mechanism out. This is a fan, and you just go to fanning, right? You fan the embers, and what it does, it, it, it stokes those embers up and gets some flaming again so you can get that fire back to like it was when it was just 
you know, blazing and you got, you got, you know, you got big crackles of fire going on. All you need to do is just, just give it a little help. Just give it a little assistance. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take some couple of ideas out of the sovereignty of God that I, I'm hoping will serve in your life to be a billow when the, when, when the, when the flames of a devoted prayer life get real low and you go a couple of days without praying and instead of feeling condemned and beating yourself up about being terrible at prayer, you can take what you hear this morning in this sermon and it just becomes a billow in your life and you just start fanning the flames with that truth that you're going to hear this morning about the sovereignty of God and you're just going to, you're just going to start fanning the fuel and the fire will return. Now, let me just go ahead and remind us all that you're going to have to fan the flame a lot over time. Why? Because you're going to find that one of the greatest battles in your spiritual life is the battle to be devoted to prayer. Can I go ahead and help us all out with something this morning? Being devoted to prayer is not natural. You know what's natural for you and me? Prayerlessness. That's what's natural. Why, why is it not natural to pray? Because prayer, by its very exercise, says I need help. And most of us just don't believe we need help. right? So the sovereignty of God is the fuel and the fan and not the excuse for a devoted prayer life. Now, let me just talk about the excuse for a second. I think something that has, that I've done a poor job of here is stressing the sovereignty of God so much that there might be a mindset that develops within us that, well, you know what? I know I don't pray, and I know I don't pray like I should. But you know what? God is so sovereign that he's going to make sure that everything that's supposed to happen is going to happen. Right? Uh-oh. That's a bad preacher. All right, I see y'all nodding your head. And you should be going, mm-mm, nope. Yes, everything's going to happen according to God's plan. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. But there's something that's in your Bible that says to you and I that though God is sovereign, that does not give us an excuse to say, well, He's sovereign, it's going to happen anyway. So I want you to hold that thought in your mind because this is going to be key to understanding about how the sovereignty of God is going to fuel and fan a devoted prayer life. So I'm going to give you some passages. We're not quite to Isaiah 37, but go ahead and get to Isaiah 37. I, I want to give you a couple of Isaiah passages that really helped me to, uh, uh, to, to, to kind of uh, build my God is in control of everything mentality, my belief. One of the reasons why Isaiah so Isaiah may be the best book in helping you to get this big, massive picture of how big God is and how in control he is. I mean, think about how Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. I mean, Isaiah had this wonderful picture and experience of the greatness of God. But Isaiah 46, 10, 46 9 and 10 says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no, no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And you, you may wonder, why did he say that twice? That's just that's Hebrew language to reinforce a big truth that God wants us to get a hold of. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
Now see, again, verses like this can take lazy Christians like us and, and, and lead us to think that, we'll see, I mean, it's, God's going to work it all out. God, I mean, God's will is going to be accomplished. Everything's going to come to pass as it should. But that is not, that is not there to give us lazy Christians an out for being prayerless. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purpose, so, so, so shall it stand. It's a lot of S's right there in the row. As many of us first discovered the sovereignty of God on the page after page after page of the Bible, uh, a strain uh, emerges uh, in our immature thinking between what He has planned and how we are to pray. Here's the question. Why would, why would I pray if God has already planned what will happen? All right? If it's going to happen then why do I got to pray about it? Our prayers can begin to feel small, peripheral, even unnecessary next to the vastness of all that God will inevitably do. He, he will accomplish His purpose. We might think whether I pray or not, and we wonder what difference our prayers might really make. So first, let me bring up to us this morning... Where does prayerlessness lead? Let's start with there. Kind of an odd place to start, but let's consider where our prayerlessness is taking us, or has taken us, or where our prayerlessness is leading us this morning. While we may feel some tension between the sovereignty of God and prayer, desperate, faithful, praying saints in Scripture do not seem to share our same struggle. And that's what's really been brought out to me in the last couple of weeks of studying this, is how we struggle with it, but people in the Bible don't seem to struggle with this. And God certainly is not afraid to intimately knit His sovereignty and prayer together, especially in times of serious need. In fact, in some of the tensest moments, the two lean and rely on each other as if God were holding them up to say to our face, see? That's what we're going to see in Isaiah 37. And as a matter of fact, if you can't come in person on Wednesday night, join us online because we're going to spend several weeks going more in depth through this uh, uh, praying and and how the sovereignty of God fuels and fans uh, a devoted prayer life. So we're we're scratching the surface this morning. We would listen closely to Moses' prayer that really saved the people from God's fury and wrath in Exodus 32, 11 through 14. We're going to look at that in the weeks to come. Or we'll, we'll marvel at Joshua really praying. Uh, his prayer really stopped the sun in the heat of the battle in Joshua 10, 12 through 14. Or watch Jonah really pray his way out of the belly of the well in Jonah 2, 1 through 10. But at least one other desperate situation really accentuates uh, the preciousness of God's sovereignty in prayer. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I've got to do a little background work before we get to Isaiah 37. So just, just listen, get the background. When Hezekiah was king of the southern kingdom called Judah, remember it got divided. We had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom uh, before the nation was sent into exile. So this is pre, what they call the pre-exilic period, pre-Jeremiah, the Assyrians assaulted Jerusalem until the people were left, according to Isaiah 36, 1, utterly hopeless. Because Ahaz, King Ahaz, the, uh, uh, he was the wicked king before Hezekiah, had refused to seek the Lord's help. And now that's recorded in 2 Chronicles 28, 24, and 25. And Judah was now firmly lodged between a rock and a horrifying enemy. How much of Israel's tortured history is meant to warn us about the awful price of prayerlessness, of looking anywhere but heaven for the help we most need? Hezekiah had done what was right. If, we, if you were to read 2 Chronicles 
31, 20 through 21, uh, trying with all of his might to undo what he had done, but they were still forced to eat the awful fruit that Ahaz had left behind. The Assyrian ambassador called uh, uh, Rabashek uh, taunted uh, Judah, taunted the southern kingdom. Isaiah 36, 18, uh, listen to what he says. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Verse 20 of Isaiah 36. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see, he's just calling into question uh, uh, God's power and might and ability to deliver. And while they were left begging on the precipice of starvation, the messenger humiliated them in Isaiah 36, 12. Their dreadful end was sure and soon and probably worse than they could even imagine. That is what happens when you live in a prayerless life. That's what happens when you fail to obey the teachings of God that we are to pray. That's what happens when you just think, well, you know what? I'm a child of God, and God's going to work all things out whether I pray or not. So let's look at what God promises. So with everything to fear and and nowhere else to go, Hezekiah did what good kings do. What do good kings do? They turn to God, right? He sent for the prophet Isaiah seeking mercy and help from above. And despite all the evil the previous generation had done, God listened to their prayer, now listen, and went to war for them. Great song picked this morning, David. And went to war for them. Now listen to what Isaiah says. Now we're in Isaiah 37. So look at 6 and 7. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. He's talking about back to what we just read in 36. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own hand. Uh, land. Now, look, now, notice what God is doing. Okay, God. So Hezekiah says, "Go get Isaiah." Isaiah comes and he says, "Hey, look, here's a word from the Lord." And he says, "This is what God's about to do. God is going to go to fight. He's going to go to war. He's going to go to battle on your behalf. And here's how He's going to do it." Everybody got that? That's God being sovereign, right? God doing what God does the way he wants to do it. He's telling them, I'm in control. This is what I'm about to do. And against everything they feared and everything they could see and everything they deserved and everything that seemed so sure to happen, God promised that they would win the war. And not only win the war, but their oppressor will not even attack. Now, that's the kind of war I like to win. Right? You go out to battle... And you don't, even have to, you, don't, you don't even have to go out and confront the enemy. You don't even have to, you know, to pull the trigger or, or you know, drop a bomb. And not only will Syria not attack, but their king will be killed, and not, and not on the battlefield, but in the relative safety of his own land. How about that? That's pretty good. I mean, those of you that have been in the military. Think about if that was the way the battles went down that you might have been a part of. I mean, who wouldn't want to win a war that way? Judah, do not be afraid, God says, through Isaiah. Though you are outnumbered by far and though you are weaker by far, you will win because you asked, watch, watch, you asked me to fight for you. Are are, are you tracking with this? He says, I'm going to do this. But then what does he say? But you got to ask for it. 
Now, hold on, preacher. How can God say, well, I'm going to do this. This is what's going to happen. But you've got to ask for it. You see, God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means to the ends. Prayer warriors patiently persist in prayer by clinging to the Lord's promises as if letting go would ruin them. I think that's on the screen. Yeah, that's, that's really good to write down. I found that. I didn't come up with that. I wish I would have come up with that. I'd probably put that on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or something because that's really good. Prayer warriors patiently persist in prayer by clinging to the Lord's promises as if letting go would ruin them. Why? Because letting go will ruin you. And some of y'all have been saying, well, I've been praying 10 years about something. I've been holding on to God's promises for 10 years, and God hasn't done anything. How do you know he's not doing something? And you're not praying to twist God's arm into doing what you want him to do. You're praying because what you're about to understand and what you are understanding now is if you don't pray, it won't happen. Just, just hold on to that. His promises do not become excuses to for us to relax and pray less, but to give us confidence and the urgency before the throne. They know their next prayer might be the very means that God has appointed to keep His promise, demonstrate His power, and display His worth. Prayer warriors do not draw near to God without a promise. And they refuse to stay away long because of what He has promised. Well, I love that. They don't draw close to God without a promise. And they refuse to stay away long because of what He has promised. Why pray if God promised it? God immediately, in the very next verse, look at verse 8 of Isaiah 37, begins to fulfill His promise to Hezekiah. The king of Assyria heard a rumor, returned to his land, and began and began fighting another army. God is doing precisely what he had planned and promised to do. The Rabbishet defies the Lord all the more, though, and fires back at Hezekiah. Look at Isaiah, look at verses 10 through 13. And thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising you that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and you shall be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them and the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, uh, uh, Resaba, uh, and the people of Eden who, at, who are at uh, Talassar where the king of uh, Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of uh, Sepharvaim, and the king of Hena, and the king of Evah. What should Hezekiah do? What should he do? God has made his promise and be began to fulfilling his very specific promise. Why not simply leave God to do what he said he would do? Because when God... Makes and when God makes and carries out His plans, He plans for us to pray. First Thessalonians five seventeen says, "Pray without ceasing." Luke eighteen one says, "The Son of God uh, uh, taught us that we ought to always pray and not lose heart." In Luke eighteen one, so watch carefully how Hezekiah handles this vulnerable and dangerous situation uh, moment. Look at verse fourteen. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Knowing full well what God had promised and had already begun to do, Hezekiah still spread his fate out before the Lord. 
He did not assume prayer was, a redund- was redundant or unnecessary. Rather, he assured that his prayers really mattered, that God meant to win this war through prayer. There was a 17th century guy named William Grenall who wrote uh, uh, a book on Christian warfare. And inside that book, he wrote about uh, prayer and how it magnifies the sovereignty of God. Listen to what he says. He said, prayer is a humble appeal from our impotency, okay, our weakness to God's omnipotence, God's strength. We give him the glory of his sovereignty and dominion and acknowledge that he is not only able to procure for us what we ask, but can give us a right to and the blessings of what he gives. You see, Hezekiah is not doubting God, nor is he trying to rob God of his sovereignty by pleading for intervention. He is exalting God's all-powerful, all-wise, all-purposeful commitment to do precisely what he had planned to do and promised to do. What would most glorify his name? So do you see that? Do you, do you see that, uh, uh, that Hezekiah's response to what, uh, to what God had told him? Th- this is not doubt in any way. He is simply doing what the Bible tells us to do, that God gives us a promise and that we can take that, prayer, that promise to prayer, that just because God has promised us to it, pro- made a promise to us for this, doesn't negate the fact that we should pray. Because though God has, again, ordained the ends, He has also ordained the means of the end, which is prayer. That's why you pray and God is sovereign. Because He ordains it, but yet then He also ordains the means, which is prayer. Everybody still with me on that? Hezekiah knew and treasured that God often does that work, His work, through prayers. So listen, so that sovereignty should be the fuel that inspires us to pray. When we feel lethargic, when we feel prayerless, when, when, when we even doubt whether prayer really works, we should remind ourselves, especially out of this story and many other stories in the Bible, that here we have over and over and over again, here we have uh, the, the, the working of prayer through a sovereign God. Not only was Hezekiah not deterred from praying, but the sovereignty, but, but by the sovereignty of God, when he prays, he runs directly into... Let me say that again. Not only was Hezekiah not deterred from praying by the sovereignty of God, but when he prays, he runs directly to the sovereignty of God. Look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. And Hezekiah, here it is, prayed to the Lord. Now watch, watch his prayer. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherub, cherub uh, you are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth, right? So what is he, he's even reinforcing God's sovereignty. Now listen to what he says. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, and open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib. Now this is the guy that this is the guy that's coming against him. Which he has sent to mock the living God. I love the way he talks to God. He's almost talking to God like God hasn't already told him that he already knows everything that's going on. Right? Didn't we just read earlier that God knows all of the smack talking that was going on? God knows everything that's, that's happening. And yet, here he is. He's coming to the Lord and he's talking to the Lord just like God doesn't know anything about what's going on. Truly, O Lord, the, king, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands. So now, so now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. <clears throat> that is the, that last line, that they may know that you alone are the Lord. Do you want to talk about motivation for praying? N- not motivation for you to get what you need, but motivation for praying should be that God's name be exalted. Every prayer should have mixed within it, and it's asking Lord, 
All we care about is your name being made great. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm petitioning you in this manner. But if, but if my petition does not bring glory to your name, if it does not lift you high, if it does not bring praise and honor and glory to your name, then I know you'll ignore me. That, that, not, not that you'll ignore, but that you won't answer my prayer. You see, sometimes our prayers aren't answered because what we're asking for will not ultimately bring honor and glory and praise to His name. And if it doesn't, it, it ultimately will not bring good into your life. Right? Because what's, what is good for your life? whatever brings honor and glory and praise to His name. The sovereignty of God does not com compromise or jeopardize prayer. It's quite the opposite. The absolute sovereignty of God over all kingdoms of the earth and over every detail of our lives is the hope and the foundation of our praying. If God is not, so if God is not sovereign but simply waits on the whims of kings and armies and circumstances, then as I said earlier, Prayer is just in vain. But our God waits on no one. Look at Proverbs 21.1. The, king, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever, uh, turns it wherever he wills. That's a good verse. Because it doesn't matter who's at the state house, the white house, who's in Congress. who's in control, God ultimately turns the heart of kings. Our God does, however, turn those streams and split those seeds, seas and open spiritually blind eyes through prayer. God makes our humble, dependent, expectant cries for, the help, uh, for help the instruments that does His work in the world. Listen, God holds the king's heart in his hands, but you know what the Bible also tells us to do? Pray for those who are in authority. Let's quit divorcing Bible verses from each other and start realizing that, yes, God controls kings. But guess what? God also says, you're a part of this by what? By praying for those who are in authority now that doesn't mean pray your republican or democratic agenda let's let's get that straight we should assume that god has very few plans for the world that do not involve the prayers of his people his will will be done whether i pray or not but his will will not be done without prayer His will will be done whether I pray or not, but His will will not be done without prayer. Because He has chosen to make prayer indispensable. The sovereign God hangs the universe on the prayers of His people. Y'all still awake? Did you hear that? You think that might give you a little fuel to get in to get in some prayer time every day? It will if you'll believe that. And then inspires and empowers us to pray. He works in our praying both to to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, let me, let me ask one more question this morning. Can we change God's plan? Can we change God's plan? Let's stay, stay with the text. Hezekiah prayed for God to save Judah from the Assyrians. Did he change the mind of God? Ultimately, no. He didn't. In God, there is no variation or shadow of change, according to James 1.17. The psalmist says to the Lord, you are the same, and your years have no end. Psalm 102, 27. God will never, ever change. Our great hope in prayer, therefore, is not to change what God has planned, 
but to bring about what God has planned. Did you get that? Don't pray to change God, what God has planned, but pray to bring about what God has planned. We do not strive to change the heart of God, but to draw out His heart in our circumstances. Martin Luther said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold to His willingness. When we pray, we do not change the mind of God as if He might have chosen wrongly. We act out of the infinite wisdom of God in the midst of all the brokenness in front of us, and we welcome the inscrutable, you know what that means? The absolute goodness He has always planned to do through our prayers. We never change God's plan when we pray, but we are called to pray and to pray expectantly for change. We are to pray that the sick would be healed, right? Acts 28.8, James 5.14. We're to pray that the lost would be saved. Matthew 9.37-38, Acts 26.18. We're to pray for all kinds of change in our hearts and, and, uh, and bodies, in our neighbors, in, uh, in our workplaces, in our nation, in the world, but never for any change in God. Christians pray, and whatever we pray, what do we pray? Your will be done. So let me conclude here. Sovereignty, the fuel for a devoted prayer life. So let, let, me, let, me, let me put something before you that maybe you've never considered before. Sometimes the sovereignty of God keeps us from praying, though, because it unsettles us in God's presence. If God is utterly in control of all that happens, how could he allow so much evil like the cruelty of the, uh, of the Assyrians? And if you allow so much evil in the world, so much heartache into my own life, why would I entrust my heart to him? In answering Hezekiah's prayer, God himself presses home what John Piper called the purposeful, all-embracing, all-persuasive, invisible sovereignty of God. The Lord says to Assyria, Judah's wicked enemy and oppressor, look at verses 26 and 27 of Isaiah 37, have you, not, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make forfeited cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn, uh, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown." Assyria, why do you boast as if nothing you have done was ultimately your doing? I, the Lord, determined what great cities you would build. I planned uh, from days of old what cities you would destroy, and now I'm bringing it all to pass. Nothing has happened here that I, the Lord, have not planned for my glory. Then Isaiah 37, 28, 29. I know you're setting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. I know you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come near to my has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way which you came. God utterly God was utterly sovereign in Assyria's rise and he will be every bit and he will be every bit as sovereign in calling them and every other evil to account. Our discomfort with God's sovereignty over evil depends on our assuming that we know better than He does. That we can imagine a better plan than the one He is unveiling, the one that we are living. Listen, God's ways are not your ways, and His plans are not your plans. They are higher, they are greater, they exceed 
all of our capabilities. We cannot understand the infinite wisdom of God. We must trust it. While he doesn't mean for us to understand his plan, he does not mean for the glimpses we get of his sovereignty to inspire us to run to him, not away from him, and certainly never to rise up against him. The Bible says something interesting in the close of this passage. Notice, um, let's see, what verse is it in? Yeah, 21 and 22. Notice this. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Watch. What does it say? Because you've what? I know I've said a lot this morning, but there's one phrase I want you to leave here with. Because you prayed. The next time the, 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 the embers are about to go from embers to ash, prayer is about to be almost snuffed out of your life because you've bought into so many fallacies concerning prayer. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to say these simple words to yourself. Are you ready? Yeah, let's say them together. I want you to say these words with me together. Because you pray. Let's try it one more time. Because you prayed. Can y'all remember those three words? Because you prayed. And when you hear those, I don't want you to hear yourself saying that to you. I want you to hear the Lord God of the universe saying to you, because you pray. The next time that you just think, I've been praying about this for so long, and God has yet to move in this situation, I want you to say to yourself, because you prayed. Because guess what? Prayer is not an afterthought in God's plan. Prayer is not plan B or a spare tire in case life breaks down. Under God, prayer runs the world. I think Beyonce said that girls rule the world or run the world, but Beyonce's not right. Prayer runs the world. For sure, God does countless miracles in the world every day that no one ever mentioned specifically in prayer. After all, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. However, he does some of his most important work in the world and in our lives precisely because his children asked him. James 5.16 God fought for the nation because Hezekiah prayed, and in doing so, God did actually what he always had planned to do through prayer. Verse 36 and 38, we're at the end of Isaiah 37. Look at it. And the angel of the Lord went down and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose in the morning, behold, they were all dead. Dead, just like God said. But what, it, but what does the text say? Because you prayed. God did what Hezekiah could not do without God, and Hezekiah did what none of us can do without prayer. And God did it precisely what God had planned to do through prayer. I want you to remember this. Prayer causes things to happen. That would not happen if you didn't pray. Prayer causes things to happen that would not happen if you didn't pray. Prayer causes things to happen that would not happen had you not prayed. Do you believe that? If you do... 
you'll be devoted to prayer. Why? Because you got ultimate confidence that my prayers are not in vain. Why? Because my prayers cause things to happen that would not happen if I had not prayed. Give me a Bible verse. You can't say that without a Bible verse. That's what you should say. I got one. James 4, 2. You desire and you have not, so you murder. <laughs> it's like, what? How's that? Keep. You covet and, do, and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you say, well, what about all that? About, we might ask amiss. We might ask God for the wrong thing. Well, what about the Bible verse that says, there's no earthly father who's, if his son asks for a piece of bread, gives him a rock. And there's no earthly father who, if his son asks for a fish, gives him a snake. <laughs> and he says, if you sinful earthly fathers know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more does your heavenly... Listen, how many... How, think, parents, think about all the crazy stuff your kids have asked you for. That's a prayer, right? That's a prayer. They're asking you for something. And you, in your infinite wisdom, knew better. That's not what you need. No, you're not getting that. Or you know what? Because you ask, I will give you that. I used to tell Angel when she was small, if you don't ask for something, I'll give you something in the end. That probably wasn't the best way to teach her about prayer. Because she could go on thinking, well, if I just don't ask God, if I don't badger God and pester God, he might give me what I need. And it's just the opposite. God wants you to badger him and, pass, and, and pester him and, and, and poke on him and prod on him and call on him all hours of the night. Because what does he say? You don't have because you just simply do not ask. And listen, what that doesn't mean is that God, uh, that doesn't mean you would have anyway, even if you didn't ask, because I have a plan. The verse doesn't mean the opposite of what it says. That's why I said some of us just think, well, I don't have to pray about it anyway because God's going to bring it to pass even if I don't ask for it. That's not what the text says. And it can't mean the opposite of what it says. It says you don't have because you don't ask. How many healings have gone unhealed because we didn't ask? But somebody else asked. How many people have? How many people should we be praying for their salvation? And they're not saved because we don't ask. Are you saying that they won't ever be saved because we don't ask? No, I just think God will raise somebody else up to pray, and God will answer that prayer. We'll just miss out on it. But you could have been the one to pray the prayer. Okay, I need to quit, but let me just throw one more at you. We'll talk more about this in depth. How about Peter? I really believe Peter would not have denied Christ three times had he done what Jesus said before they went into the garden. You remember what Jesus said? Stay here and pray that you not enter into temptation. I believe Jesus was giving him a heads up. Temptation is coming. And it did, didn't it? But what did Jesus also say? Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Why? Because Jesus knew that Peter wasn't going to heed his command to pray. And what does the Bible tell us in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Some of us would sin less if we started praying that prayer. Why? Because we'd have less temptation. And we don't have less temptation because we're not asking for less temptation. You have not because you ask not means that prayer causes things to happen that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray, which is why this is staggering, why this is so glor uh, such a glorious privilege to be taken by the sovereign God of the universe who rules all things according to his infinite wisdom and folded it into his causality. It's breathtaking. If you do not avail yourself 
the privilege to, uh, to, uh, of bringing to pass the events in the universe that would not take place if you didn't pray, then you and I are acting like colossal fools. If you're offered the privilege of engaging with God in such a way that your request could bring into being things that would not otherwise come into being, not to avail yourself, just be foolish. And here's my final statement to you this morning. And then, so David, come on, let's get ready to sing. Look at it. We pray because God is beckoning us into our share in running of the universe. Huh? You need to write that down. Get your phone out. Take a picture of that, of that slide. You need that. I need that. Look, we all would love in our own sinful way to be in charge of the universe, right? How many of you would love for everybody to do what you wanted them to do? How many of you would like to dictate all the events of life? Well, you don't get to do that, but guess what? The God of the universe through everything he teaches us about prayer and everything he shows us about prayer in the Bible, he really is saying this. I am calling you, I am beckoning you into your share and your role in the running of this universe through the means of prayer. So, hey, you don't like the way things going? Get to praying. Right? Huh? You've got a role. It's called prayer. Now, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night, I'll have a list. You can go ahead and get it. I'm going to have it on the church Facebook page this afternoon. 40 ways to pray. And, and, and it's just, it's simple. It's one line, pray this. Here's the verses to pray. Here's a verse to pray with it or a couple of verses to pray. And here's what, I'm going to call, here's what I'm calling us to do. All of these are prayers that we are commanded in the Bible to pray. Uh, so I've taken all the guesswork out of it. Just like when Isaiah came and said, this is what the Lord has said, and then Hezekiah responded and prayed accordingly, the, the Word of God is the will of God. That's, that's our Isaiah. That's our prophet speaking to us. This is how you pray. Then we take that and we lay it out in front of God and we pray for the God of the universe to intervene, to act, to do His work, to, do, to accomplish His will in this way. And then we trust that He's going to act and do according to His will because we ask. He's not acting because we've twisted His arm. He's acting because we're, we're, we're playing our part and our role in His sovereign will coming to pass because we are praying and our prayers are bringing His will into existence in this world. That's why prayer is important. That is the fuel and the flame for a devoted prayer life. So Father, in these next moments, some of this stuff is a little, uh, it could be new to some of us. And maybe for some, it's just something that we've forgotten about or we've never thought about. And, and, and surely, even this last statement uh, that, 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 that you beckon us in, in, into playing our role in the running of the universe may even seem to be wild and exotic and out there. And, and maybe to some degree, it didn't even seem to be truly biblical. But it is. We, we see it over and over and over again. In the days ahead, you're going to give us story after story where you say this is your promise, and then your people pray, and then your promises come to pass. And that's what you've done to us. You have given us promises. You said this is what's going to happen. And then you say, then you tell us to pray. Pray for laws. Pray for sick people. And there's, there, there's so much that you tell us to pray for that you promise that you will heal the sick, you will save the lost, you will do all of these great and mighty works. But they will not be done. They, but they will not be done if we do not pray. And so, Father, help us to 
feel and know and sense that you are drawing us in to this great work of the running of the universe called prayer. Work in our hearts and lives in a very deep way in the moments ahead that would set a trajectory for the days ahead where we can live more as people who are devoted to prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing our final song this morning.